welcome to the Arabist podcast. Today is Wednesday, 21st of December, 2011. Um, with me as usual to, today is Ursula Lindsay. Ashraf Khalil, unfortunately, is out of town. But we have a special guest to replace him, the legendary Sen Monkey, Mahmoud Selim, candidate for parliament, notorious Egyptian blogger and tweeter, at Sen Monkey or senmonkey.org. Uh, we're going to be talking, obviously, about the, the events that have transpired this week uh, in Egypt with uh, over 14 killed and, uh, and I think at least uh, six or 700 uh, wounded since uh, last Friday when the uh, Occupy cabinet pro protest began clashes with uh, military police that escalated into basically four days of uh, all-out uh, stone war uh, in uh, downtown Cairo. Um, I'm sure you've all been following this on the blog and on on, on television. But before we, we, we get to these uh, the, these quite depressing recent events, we want to talk with uh, with Mahmoud with Semonki about the elections generally and and his experience as probably one of the youngest candidates uh, uh, in, in in this. These post-revolutionary elections, uh, Mahmoud, I, I believe you were also a campaign manager after uh, being a candidate uh, campaigning in Suez. Um, what what was your experience of these elections? How did it go for you? Well, it was very interesting as the first uh, um, post-revolution election. Uh, for me, the experience was an excuse in a way to go out and actually discover my district and what people are saying. When did you decide to run first? I mean, it's uh, running is, you know, it's a huge commitment of time, a huge commitment uh, of money or time spent fundraising. Uh, how, how did you, uh, when did you think it's worth it? Was it just where you caught in the revolutionary fervor? And no, I looked around and I saw everybody who is a revolutionary candidate and I didn't find any single one of them, I don't know, worthy of any supporter getting that title. I don't see them representing me in any way. In my opinion, I've decided to run after reading books about the 1952 revolution. And there is a paragraph that I have cited before, and it was a concept of that uh, a revolution is not something to toy with. A revolution is not something you start, the street starts and then walks away from. You know, it's uh, you, have, you have destroyed foundations, you have created enemies, you have uh, pulled in a bunch of people to your side and to the other side. You have divided people. It's not something to be told with. If you're, <laughs> you either do it in order to reach power and then actually fulfill what you need to do in this revolution, or you're just fucking around. Yani, apologies for using the F word. But so that's basically the idea. So, uh, that's, uh, it's the issue of actually understanding that the climate in Egypt when it comes to Uh, voting has not changed. No actual social change has happened in that sense. Not because the people are used to selling their votes or because they don't have self-respect, but mainly because they need to put food on the table. So all there is to it. You're talking them about causes and lofty ideals. And well, we sure had a much. We still had a much larger turnout 
uh, this election than in previous ones. I mean, probably a turnout about four times larger, let's say. No, before that, it wasn't an election. It was, you know, most Egyptians voted while staying home because people were, like, voting for them in the polling stations. Hmm. So, and the guy that Mubarak wanted to win usually won, so there was no point in actually going. And a lot of people went this time out of... Mistaken fear of a fine that they they thought they would be they would be fined if they didn't show up to vote, right? Indeed, five hundred pound uh, fine. That's uh, basically uh, we did we did a poll balance choice because I was the one in control. When you're a candidate, you're not in control. The campaign manager is in control. That's when you're a campaign manager, you're the one who can do anything he wants. So we did a poll, wanting to see how many of the people who went there actually went there knowing who to vote for. And we basically were asking people before they went into the polling station. Uh, 40% did not know who they're going to vote for, and they just went because of the fine. Uh, about uh, another uh, 40% to 50% uh, basically uh, didn't know anything about the candidate except like their name and their symbol and the assurances that they're good people. Hmm. Other than this, there was nothing. And very few people actually knew the history of the candidates who they wanted to vote for. And that's, this is true... Uh, across all social classes, uh, all levels of education, all levels of income. People who have money are as politically ignorant as people who don't have money, and sometimes even worse. And their their look at things is more classes than you can ever imagine, and more anti-Muslim brotherhood than ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. And the 40% of people who in this poll um, came to the polling station without knowing who to vote, how and when did they actually decide who to vote for? Inside the voting line. And this is the part in which uh, they have outlawed, you know, promotion and promotion for the party outside the, outside the gate. Uh, and this is where uh, at least about 25% of the vote comes from. It's the being the last person to get to, to put the name of a candidate or a party or whatever to the person at the door or talking to them and convincing or sending people to, as voters inside the lines and talking to other people and trying to change their minds you know so yeah so as a candidate what do you spend your time doing what do you spend your time doing well <clears throat> you spend a lot of your time uh, running around the city you know going to different areas shaking hands with people talking to people stuff like that uh, you do um, a lot of uh, small uh, gatherings, for example, inside local co- uh, coffee shops. Um, and then you need to do some sort of events in order to get the ball rolling as well with those people. Because it's not always uh, you're going to announce that your company will come. There has to be an incentive. Usually you want to pay for drinks or something, like, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did uh, what's it called the backgammon tournament which uh, proved to be highly successful in getting everybody to know my name. It was, it was a brilliant uh, experience because it showed you real social networking happening. But uh, you do big conferences as well. Uh, you basically might get involved slightly in people's problems and you might try to solve them, but you don't want to do it as a service. For example, yeah, and you would get involved if someone, if there was a problem between someone, Masan from Heliopolis, who had a fight altercation with a police officer. You had to meet community leaders. Okay, this is the interesting part. Though. It's what you get, what gets revealed to you actually as a candidate. First of all, there are areas in the district that you have never seen. An entire section, for example, in Heliopolis, <coughs> in Medinic Yemen, there is a cafe, and then there is a cafe, and then there is a pathway. 
closed pathway. That pathway leads to an area called the Bulok. It's a block of uh, 2,000 families that you have never seen them before at all. Uh, you meet people in Almaza and you marvel at like how gorgeous Almaza is and how it was a new part and how it's very organized and how they all vote together. You know, that's and because there are there are people there who are considered the elders. There are lots of local leaders that we don't know about. Uh, the most powerful uh, Christian in Cairo is possibly not Nagib Sawiris, but this other dude, you know, who with one phone call could actually move about 60,000 people, Muslims and Christians, to do anything he wants because he's such a giving man and he helps everyone. Goes out of his way. You know, uh, in Azbat al-Muslimin, for example, <coughs> all of Azbat al-Muslimin owes their allegiance to Salab, uh, Mustafa Salab, the late Mustafa Salab. He used to be an MP, and he used to give every family 50 pounds a week. And after he died, his son continued giving them 50 pounds a week. So they all just uh, sing his praises there forever. Like if his son says, "Vote for this person," they will. Vote so, for and this is this is the case even in in, in this district, which is in a highly urban. It's part, it's part of Cairo. I mean, it's it's not some village. Uh, uh, highest level of education, highest level of income. Okay, in the country, Heliopolis, and that's how people are like. And. Uh, of course, but, uh, when you go and do your things in certain those areas, most of those areas are controlled by thugs, and thugs of the area. And there's a thug war over area and denomination. You, know, you cannot come and do things in our area, we control our area, control your area. This is how it actually works there, because there is no police. So uh, <clears throat> you can go to conferences, and you always need protection, because very easily someone could just send some thugs your way. Uh, I was at a conference in which it wasn't safe, and there were seven guys who came in holding Farada Khartouche, which is a makeshift gun, you know, and uh, they were waiting for us to finish the conference and leave so that they can ambush us. And basically, <clears throat> we called in more of our guard, yeah, this has happened, and they created a buffer zone between us and them, you know, until I got into the car and left. You know, this happens all the time. Getting people to go and destroy people conferences happens all the time. Getting your advertising, a lot of my advertising. I had about 200 banners hung up. 180 of them were just taken apart or like removed within five, four hours. I have to say that I've noticed that across the country and I do find it a kind of depressing lack of civicism. Everybody tore down everybody else's banners yeah. all over, everywhere I went. It's, and, and you know really why? Just let the other people put up their posters. No. You, you, it was systematic. I, I think no, nothing tells you more, speaks more of the difference between Tunisia and Egypt actually, that, it, that, that you've had this kind of chaotic system in Egypt. Whereas in Tunisia, you could only put posters up in these little squares on that were painted on walls by the municipality yeah. and you know each party had its square <laughs> so it's simple. very neat oh, i don't know i kind of enjoy the sort of haphazard proliferation in in squares in egypt of you know five different banners and posters and these these kind of forests of signs that have that have grown i don't i don't mind that but i think it's it you know, to hire your or to hire or to encourage your people to go out and systematically tear down your adversaries' posters is also just like a misuse of your energy that speaks to sort of political immaturity. You know, it happens in the so-called advanced democracies too, I'm mind sure. you. I'm uh, sure. Also, any candidate 
who doesn't go down and offer people services and jobs and money or whatever, or building something, is a candidate not intend to win. You have to bribe them with something. You have to give them something. People have been systemized to that extent. They want, and it's also because of the economic situation for them. Do you think this is a system that was set up by the 52 regime or by the Mubarak regime, or an older system? You know, because it's reminiscent. This whole idea of gangs and big guys in the neighborhood and so on is very reminiscent of what Nagib Mahfouz wrote about 60 years ago. No, maybe, but I, I honestly, maybe, maybe, maybe the thing is they don't improve it; they just nurtured it and made it evolve. Maybe that's what happened. But uh, it's basically uh, 30 years of Mubarak. We just removed him six months ago. Okay, and we have done no actual work on society itself. We were too busy with the political battle, with fighting within, with the SCAF and you know, the military trials and everything that they're doing, that we have led the political aspects of this revolution overshadowed the social and uh, cultural aspects of this revolution. There were people who were warning about that quite early on after February 11th when Mubarak uh, was kicked out. Uh, why do you think? I mean, why do you think it developed that way rather than? I, I was one of those people. I have said that we need to go. We need to forget the in March. I said we need to forget the here, and we need to go every other square. Talk to the people. Uh, there are 11 revolutions that happened. That there is a study done on 11 revolutions, uh, 11 countryside revolutions, basically. And in those 11 that <coughs> the old regime came back, it happened mainly because of the hero complex that the revolutionaries end up having, uh, the lack of uh, clear, realistic uh, plan or goal to achieve their demands or whatever, and uh, the lack of concentration of roots. They did not concentrate the roots in the society. If the revolution does not concentrate its roots everywhere in the country, the revolution will not succeed. The revolution became a subculture in itself. The revolutionaries are subculture. They're not the country because they didn't work on this. They were too worried about the political aspects, the political gains of the revolution than to actually work on the people. Had they worked on the people, they would have solidified their support and nobody would have been able to pull that shit with them. You can argue, though, that there are people who've been working on the people, as you put it. There are p political parties and movements who have done that for a long time. That's certainly the case of the Muslim Brothers. True. True. And that's so what is wrong with the non-Islamist elite of this country, then? They, uh, they don't, don't get off their asses. Everybody comes to you screaming. The Islamists are winning. Uh, do something. I'm like, I'm doing something. You do something. What are you doing besides sitting, sitting down and complaining? I always fe felt that actually one of the big impediments to this happening, to having a more organic type of continuation of the of the uprising, if you want, and to transform it into revolution, was that SCAF remained. Is that you know SCAF was still there as uh, not because or not only because it did negative things, but also because its presence and its power made all the other factions look to it as an arbiter. And, and, you know, as opposed to, to what you had in Tunisia, which was to a large extent a consultation among equals between the political parties, uh, also and managed by a technocratic class, yeah. but, but, you know, but, but the technocratic class basically conceded to that we need, you know, it was a good thing that Ben Ali went for the most part, things need to change and so on. But then the parties built a transition around that. 
uh, around talking to each other, whereas in Egypt that never really happened. I mean, the, yeah, the, the brothers maybe were, were, were afraid of uh, the liberals uh, 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 trying to recreate, if you want, a milder form of the, 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 the elite liberal alliance with the uh, Mubarak regime that, mm. against, against uh, fundamentalists, basically. Uh, vice versa, the liber- uh, no, people were afraid of the brothers allying with the uh, SCAF, and as, as they did to some extent. Uh, uh, SCAF's presence is, uh, is, was the problem. I know, but it's also, it's everyone's revolution. You know, it's a revolution which the Muslim Brotherhood were part of, it's a revolution where the socialists were part of, it's a revolution where the liberals were part of. Uh, each one of those groups, and the Salafis as well, each one of those groups had a very specific image in their mind, you know, of what the country should be like. So it's natural that you're having that clash of visions. It's very normal, even without the scaf being there. The clash of visions, I yeah. I think what Islam is saying is that you could have, but, but those, that clash could lead to some sort of fruitful... Negotiation and results. If you, if you, if you, if if these forces were contending with each other instead of there being this other force above them all outside of the political sphere mm-hmm. that is currently has all the powers while not being a political actor, and so it's always negotiating with them, setting them aside each other, trying to find this balance that protects its, that guarantees it its powers. If they were just having to deal with each other, something more productive might come out of it. I think they try to do both at the same time, but definitely the the, the existence of the SCAF ended up overshadowing everything else after a while because they're the ones who are making the rules. You are correct in that. However, uh, I don't think it would have also worked out, mainly because you have uh, people who are not political leading political parties, or people who are political, but in order to survive the political climate of Mubarak, they had to be slightly tainted and slightly corrupt and slightly power-hungry at the same time. I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about what you experienced now as a candidate in Cairo, but as a campaign manager in Suez. First, who, who were you man- whose campaign were you managing? I was ca- managing the campaign for El Kotla in Suez. It's the El Kotla's uh, uh, representative list, whatever, the portion list. Kotla being the Egyptian bloc, uh, yeah, which Egyptian is a, bloc. an alliance exactly. of left uh, liberal parties. Of left and liberal parties, exactly. And it's basically there. They made a Suez into one district. And, but because the amount of people in, in the whole entire like, government of Suez was equal to the amount of people in Heliopolis, <laughs> they did not give them many seats. So there were six seats total. Uh, Suez is, was basically a very interesting and challenging environment due to its special nature, which every Suez will let you know that uh, it does have a special nature as they explain the kind of really bad thing that they have done. <laughs> Uh, so Suez so also importantly was one of the really heart of the of the uprising and, and, yes. and in many respects started the serious uprising before Cairo even yes. on the, as soon as early as the 25th the yes. fighting started in Suez can I tell you uh, a secret can I tell you a secret you, you can tell all the listeners uh, a secret, tell us a secret. Uh, I did not find many revolutionaries in Suez I found many people who are thuggish <laughs> in Swiss. I, but you could say that people. There's found, a lot of people who now feel like I, there's no revolutionaries no, left no, in Cairo. No, I know, I know, I know revolutionaries. Okay, and what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the, the morals of the revolution. The people who are there, you know, who call themselves revolutionaries or whatever, they are basically just looking for money, 
Everybody there was looking for money. And everybody was very thuggish in the way they actually, actually asked for money. You know, but whatever, that wasn't the issue. The issue was the fact that we've gone through uh, what I could say is a very dangerous experience, but apparently not one that's very uncommon for many people who have worked inside the governorates. So uh, what happened to you guys? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, long story short, uh, we've had basically one of our uh, one of the guys who were working the streets for us got hit by a car and that, that escaped a runaway car in the middle of the day in front of our uh, you know in front of our electoral headquarters which was on one of the main streets of Swiss and then on election day uh, shit really hit the fan uh, one of our uh, campaign team went to a school that uh, there were reported violations there and he basically got arrested by military police for filming the military promoting the Noor Party, the Salafi Noor Party, to the point in which they actually had like a sign, you know, made of cloth in which they wrote the Noor Party slogan on the side of a truck, you know, and <clears throat> I have seen them myself just when the Noor people, they're like, you know, doing their uh, Islamia, Islamia chants, they would like chant and dance to it as well. The army. The army. Uh, the day of the vote, uh, the vote count, we have actually sent one of our campaign members into the voting uh, voting center, the ballot counting center. The rest is a Salafi. And the army people, when he went inside, they they took him to the side and they shook his hand and they told him that uh, yeah, they're very much with the inward party and uh, God willing, they will uh, get two seats, wink, wink. So, you know, I have I've had problems as the Egyptian block of entering any school, even though I have, like, you know, a letter of agency from them for the entire governorate to go anywhere I want. And they should let me inside the school immediately. And the army went out of their way to not to let me have that. So the day they arrested that guy and they were going to offer him for military trials, except when we interfered and got him out while this was happening, our electoral headquarters was getting attacked by thugs with Molotov cocktails and burned down. Uh, people claiming that they worked for us and did not get paid, which none of them did. You know, actually they were sent by another party, which I'm not gonna mention. And then when we went back to the hotel with the guy and we got the news that the place got attacked, we ended up getting waves of waves of people coming to the hotel, uh, claiming that they have been worked for us. Someone told them that they're working for us and they did not get paid, you know? And then they came attacking our hotel uh, till three in the morning. And then the head of the security for Swiss, Mudiram Swiss, was uh, actually calling, uh, called my phone, asking for my presence as well, because apparently some of those people went in front of the governorate of Swiss to protest against us. <laughs> there was an actual protest <laughs> done against the Kutla by people who never worked for a Kutla at all. You know, and the thing is, they have field advantage there because the police will do anything they want because they don't want problems. Yeah, the, the, the police was, was uh, I think, pretty much all police stations in Suez were burned down. Were burned down. Uh, they, there was extreme anti-police sentiment, and uh, they're very, keeping a very low profile in no, Suez no, no. to this day, I think. The police do whatever the Suez people like. You know, the military the same way. So when we were, hotel was getting attacked by people, thankfully, we had an army regiment protecting the hotel because the hotel had 
judges staying in them. But around like 1 or 1.30 in the morning, I had the army uh, guy, the army major responsible for protecting the hotel, come in and tell me that if I did not resolve the situation outside, he has direct orders to deal violently with any people who threaten this hotel. And when he's going to attack, he's going to attack those outside and inside that threaten the hotel. Okay. He's going to destroy the hotel to save the hotel. Exactly. <laughs> He's going to beat the residents of the kind hotel. Kind of like what they're doing with the country. <laughs> yeah. mm. so, Wait, but, and sorry, can I, and so again, can I just ask you, did, so did uh, did the Kutla, how many Kutla candidates won? Uh, how many seats did you guys get out of One seat. One seat one in the list. One out of four. One out of four, that's not bad. It's not bad at all. No, it's, you know, the, the, the real work, actually, but if you want to talk about the campaigning, it's not the going to places and checking hands with people. All of this is very important. Uh, the real work is making sure that you have, um, uh, that you house your reps, that the, the, the process goes like this. Every, uh, in order to have a rep that stands inside the, the, the polling stations, his name has to be uh, from this ballot box. You know, inside the ballot box, it has to be a voter on this ballot box and this registry. So your challenge is not getting people to go to the polling station; is making sure that you have the right person at the right polling station. He's going to be your special rep, which is why there are many polling stations that don't have reps. So if you manage to do this, and if you manage to have a supervisor on them, and you manage to have a lawyer covering every school, you know, and a quick intervention team of protection and <laughs> lawyers to come back anyone up in case a problem happens, you know, and a headquarters to report the violation, that's basically, that's that's the campaign. If you manage to have every person in front of every uh, ballot box and a supervisor and a lawyer and everything, you technically have won this election because you're hiring about 700 people, so to speak. So 700 people and Swayze, so each one of them must know a whole bunch of people, and, you know, and they're getting, and that's beside by the, the, the mobilization teams, because that's by the other thing. You need to have mobilization teams, which are people who go and uh, basically go to areas and just, you know, we're get from out this area, get out the vote from people from inside the area. But it's basically like they go there and they get the people and they just move them to the polling station. You're going to vote for this person, we know this person, make people trust them. So you want to win elections, you don't have to have a program, you don't have to have your picture on a poster. Uh, all you need is mobilization teams, your reps in every school, and to have your symbol as big as the sun. <laughs> on your, it has to be very, very clear what it is and how big it is. You can have the symbol bigger than your face, bigger than anything. Just make the symbol clear because they can misspell your name and they can change your number anytime they feel like. The one thing that they cannot change is the symbol. And most people go in looking for the symbol. They don't even look for the name. So, it's it's very the whole symbol thing is very interesting. That alone, as a candidate, for example, was a very interesting experience to go through. Because to pick your symbol. Yeah, no, because they assign you a symbol, and mm -hmm. then you can actually object to that. So um, the symbol that they gave me at first was the comb. The a comb. A comb. Okay. I was gonna be the comb. Symbol. A hair comb. Yeah. A hair comb. Which uh, is not a very <laughs> good symbol. It's not very exciting. No, no not, not besides that, in, in Egypt, immediately, if you had the comb, you've had the, the lice remover, you know, symbol. You okay. know, Ifalaya. <laughs> That's immediately because it sounds like, no, no, no comb, no comb. You know, and then, uh, so we're going to change this. We're going to change the symbol. Okay, uh, what do we have? Okay, we have the red onion symbol. No. We have the green onion symbol. 
No. <laughs> we have the television uh, aerial symbol, the television antenna symbol, which has negative connotations on a man's sexuality. Basically means a cuckold in Egypt, so no. Wow, okay. You Never would have, you know, you, you need a special no, advisor because, on because the sexual connotations. Not, not horns. You're sitting there, you're watching uh, this happening. And you're not interfering, you're okay with it, and you're just transmitting the, yeah, you're basically, it's like you're an aerial. You're picking up the transmission, you're not actually an active participant. Okay, okay, but you ended up with a nice symbol, though. That's I mean, very that's appropriate what I'm saying. Well, that's, that's, it came down, after that, they're like, okay, we have the banana symbol. And I was just like, I wanted the banana symbol, and my campaign... Send monkey, I mean... I know, uh, and they said they refused, because they said it's a phallic symbol, it could be used uh, in any gay connotation, not to mention, if you lose, they will say that they have slipped you on your banana, or whatever, as a halawuk. So those are the considerations. <laughs> so ridicule is a, is ridicule. a, ma- is a major I've, consideration. I've heard, I've heard this. I've t- I've I've heard stories from from f- friends who are election monitors about them sitting with people on the election commissions and them getting phone calls from candidates and saying, "No, no, no, sir. I assure you. I assure you, it is a male crocodile. It is not a female crocodile." And they have like a candidate who's convinced that the symbol he's been given is. A female crocodile, and he's being mocked mercilessly by his friends and neighbors for having some sort of effeminate symbol. Or there's some man in Alexandria who got what looks a little bit like a dress, and you know, was laughed at across all of town. Apparently, uh, this is a very sensitive issue. Yeah, is the if bike, anything vaguely effeminate? Oh, bad. the bike, of course. The bike terrible. is very bad. <laughs> So what did you end up with? So, no, I basically they said, well, oh, we have left our bad symbols, like the helicopter and the laptop. I was like, laptop. <laughs> I'll take laptop. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll take laptop. And I took laptop. Good. That's very appropriate. Yeah. That's a good one. Yes, Amr Hamzawi had a uh, ring. Uh, of course. He's, he's very... Of course. You know, it was a very good thing. Amour. And Asma Mahfouz got the cupboard. The cupboard. Okay. Yes. So, well, <laughs> which is very... <laughs> Yeah. An exciting one. Very exciting. Uh, so, uh, your conclusion from this whole electoral process, I mean, you, you, I, I do think that, that people, the, whether it's the media, obviously, the government, has, has underplayed the extent to which there's a lot of questions about a fraud, lot, about... A lot of corruption. Not just the government, though. I mean, over, until now, the reports, even by observers... There's been this general kind of like generally free and fair evaluation. Do you do you agree? And then people with that? are excited. You know, so many people went to oh, queue the long queues and here, so on. Here is the thing: uh, this election is very important because it kind of gives you uh, an idea of what's to come, in a way, which is that um, the kind of state we're going to live in. We used to live, or the kind of state, the compromise that SCAF has with the revolution. We used to live in a state that was both corrupt and dysfunctional. Stuff did not work. At all, you know anything. The the, the the police did not do their job. The the people in the government will not do their job. Whatever. It's just everybody moved through corruption. Uh, I think the compromise and, and but people were not mad about the corruption because in many ways corruption just facilitated shortcuts. But they were mad about how apparent it is and how sloppy the people who work for the government were at doing their job. 
Yeah, you uh, bribe someone and they still don't do things right for you. Or no, or just simply they won't do anything unt- unless you bribe them. Yani, mm. At least do your job. And yani, this it was the only country in which you actually had to pay a bribe to get what's rightfully yours, not to get something extra. But that's the definition of a bribe, I mean. No, but that's what I'm saying. No, in, a bribe is when I want to win something, mm. all right? And I give you a bribe to make me win over someone else. I get something extra, more than my right. This one, I had to give you a bribe in order to let me even compete. Sure, I see. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is why it was dysfunctional for Egyptians. People were, I mean, even Mubarak, many people have said, you know, he could have stayed if he had just made the country better and did not steal as much. You know, this sentiment that many people have shared. You know, uh, so the thing about our election is this. They brought people in and they stood in queues and they went in and they found their names and they voted and they left. Very civilized experience. But in reality, all the fraud and corruption happened underneath. It's the model that operates in South American countries, corrupt but functional. You know, corruption on the down low, I think that's what they're going to do. You know, you want to feel safe, we'll put some police on the, on the street, for example. We'll increase police presence. We're not necessarily going to do anything, but it's going to be there. You know, that's the idea. Uh, they're doing their job, they're on the street, they're stopping cars, traffic, a sense of security, a sense of a clean election. We're the only country in the world that believes that uh, being civilized is cleaning the street. <laughs> All right, this is the mark of civilization. This is the most important thing. You know, we can just. You're, you're, you're a country that's uh, slightly obsessed with being civilized, actually. If you, in you, terms you, of cleanliness. In terms of cleanliness, and, and of course, there's even panels. I remember in Luxor, there's, there, there's uh, uh, street panels that say cleanliness is a hallmark of civilization or something like that's that. It's, it. very, it's very bizarre. That's it. You know, not treating each other right, not, not respecting each other. No, no, it's just, is everything clean? Did you litter? But so you think that there there was a significant amount of not just irregularities but fraud? Uh, the fraud happened on multiple levels. Yes, there was fraud. Okay. Um, there are many ways in which you can commit fraud on many levels. You know, and each level depends on how connected you are. You know. Uh, there is the regular level. Right? And it's a beautiful thing because it's kind of like a self-regulating system that kind of eliminates downward fraud because upward, like, you know, upscale fraud just can completely mess it up for the downward fraud, for from the... Under- so the fraud itself is not democratic. In, in a way, yes. No, it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. And yeah. then let's say if you spend more money buying votes, for instance... You might not get, you might not uh, get shafted by, by corrupting a judge, by corrupting exactly. uh, the vote counters or something. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. So it happens either. You can do regular vote buying. And then you have the people inside the polling station, the judges or whatever, the workers, who can sell you the remaining votes of a ballot box at the end of the day of the second day. And usually the vote is very cheap, about four pounds a vote. And they just do marks for them. And this is the votes of people who haven't shown up and are votes therefore who available. Not shown up and therefore are available. Yes. Uh, on a bigger level, it's the fraud that happens when they're actually counting the ballots, which uh, involves the people who are there who could simply just put an extra mark on any paper and consider it an invalid vote and throw it, or they can uh, count uh, the ballots any way they wish. All right. So basically, because nobody else is going to actually check behind them. And you mentioned something on your in this last blog post about ballot boxes ah, actually being thrown out. I'll give you. I'll explain to you why. But on top of those guys, then there is the top fraud, the, the the coolest fraud. Besides the actual judge of the central election committee, and even that he can't do much fraud in that sense. Yeah, but the guy who goes out 
and passes by every table and writes the results in a piece of paper, who then represents it to the judge. All right, that guy can put any numbers he wants, and nobody will check it because the judge has been there for two days and wants to go home. Well, unless the judge is conscientious or surprised by the result or... How would he know? It's an election. How would you know how, how, uh, how someone did in reality? You know, they can seem as if they're strong and they can end up being weak. And that's a beautiful thing about the election. <laughs> you know, it can be very surprising. Anything can be explained. He just did not do it. You know, whatever. Just don't make it too obvious. But there's a lot of challenges. So when people, when these complaints are investigated, if they're investigated and they go, they're supposed the to go back. Any, 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 any voter recount at any district will be hugely problematic. Because in order for them to fix those numbers, there are lots of votes that got thrown out. You know. Yeah, lots of votes that were basically just put aside or whatever, or like just thrown out, just to avoid the boxes being problematic if you ever compare the actual votes with the actual numbers that they end up having. Uh, the Egyptian bloc has about half a ton of valid votes uh, that were for them in their office. They were thrown out in the street in Heliopolis, in Nasser City, in Amra, in Zatun. It's been on TV. <laughs> People have seen them on TV. I have votes that were thrown out of mine. I have Kotla votes that were thrown out. And so is there a court... Ca- I mean, are they going to court over this? If we they have that kind of court. evidence? And guess what? Court is not making decisions over anything. As in, they're not giving a verdict? They're yeah. Ref- like they're, they're, they're even refusing saying... They're not denying it, they're just not giving a verdict. They're not giving a verdict. So who who is it referred to? Huh? Who does it get referred to? Well, the election committee, of course, the high election committee. These 12 judges. Yeah, you do it it through the... You file a lawsuit, basically, at Al-Qadar Idari, I believe. The the committee is at Al-Qadar Idari. So So the administrative judiciary? Yeah, the administrative judiciary. And uh, nothing. Sometimes they uh, rule a verdict, sometimes they just uh, delay, delay, delay. It's, it's one of the problems, I think, with this election, because they were so hastily and badly arranged, is that the problem-solving mechanism for it is very, very vague, With, with uh, from, from what I understand. Judges themselves not having a clear idea of how the system works. If you have a complaint, you go and file a lawsuit. But now there's there's some there's a, at least a couple of hundred lawsuits just for the first round, I believe, 12 of them are lawsuits for the cancellation of the entire round, not yes. just in a particular district, yes. and we don't know where this is going. We don't know when the, no, this whole system this, is going to make so, a decision. We don't know if it's going to be buried in the, in the, the carpet, because there's a long tradition of just that happening, obviously, in, in the Mubarak era, where most parliaments were declared at some point unconstitutional. Um, like, it's weird. They only allowed uh, a revote in one district, which is Shobra. But that's mainly because it was too big of a scandal. There are 90, about 90 ballot boxes that disappeared. That were just unfound, that, that got lost in the mix, that were not counted. And about 19 that they can't find. You know? <laughs> you had cases like in the English school in which uh, the polling stations that had high Christian turnout, they actually had uh, two forms to vote from. And if it's a Christian name, they gave them the unstamped form which invalidates the votes immediately. 
not to mention to the last minute people did not know much they did not like we you got informed that the voting is going to happen on two days not one day just like three days before the voting or something you know uh, until the election started you don't know the the limits of your district you did not know your numbers you did not know people just did not have the information at all at all it was set up to fail set up to be the most uninformative elections ever it happened again Candidates, you had every district has at least about 80 90 candidates fighting over the two seats, and you have three to four weeks to cover areas that could be as big as 1.2 million people population. Heliopolis district is 1.2 million people population. 400,000 votes, but 1.2 million population. You have to meet those people. When are you going to meet those people in four weeks? It's impossible. Of course, and I think districting wasn't even done until even less than, less than a month. Uh, it was our biggest problem. Where is our limits for being a Heliopolis voter? You know, suddenly everything was divided in the most arbitrary and weird line. How, how, how do you, you know, I mean, you, you ran for parliament, but now that you've discovered all this about the process, maybe you weren't, you're not so surprised with what you discovered, but do you feel that this, this parliament is going to have legitimacy? Uh, Do you feel even that the elections are going to come to an end? I mean, uh, this election will come to an end. Uh, but you're going to face... Here's the thing. Uh, people just want to get things moving. That's that's the issue in reality. People are not voting because they're excited to vote or democracy. It's because there's something they have to do and it will get the ball rolling. And then we'll get to this uh, supposed country that the revolution has promised us and uh, we can all end this. Yeah, this is literally how people act. People, uh, many people have voted yes simply because they wanted the most direct, clear way they can get out of this. People suffer from the fact that there is no actual clarity on anything. It's just some weird process, you know, that gets imposed on them. And it's the only way out, so they do it. So very much so, even if it is, you know, if there are lots of fraud, uh, whether or not it gets uh, played in the media is something different. Whether or not the judiciary will actually rule for it or against it, You have two options. Either they're not going to do anything, in which case they just wanted the parliamentary elections over and done with. doesn't matter how it went, which was something that we all expected in a way. Just just get it through. Just get it through and that's it. Or, which is the more fun option, (laughs) they might just say there are too many injunctions. We have to repeat the elections. At which point you do have a big question. Who has money to compete anymore? I don't think that I think that they're invested in this in this process, Actually. but um, the question is, I mean, it, it's you know we live 15 minutes from Tahrir Square. There's been this incredible violence going on all week long. It's almost surreal. There's almost there's almost surreal divide now between what's happening on the street, at least in central Cairo, and this ongoing political process. You know, I can't tell how people feel about the elections anymore. If they still think that they're necessary to move forward, there seems to be, um, you know, a certain amount of shock over the army violence that has happened, but certainly very little sympathy with the with the protesters. Yes. And everybody still seems to be sort of stuck on this. Like you say, we got to move forward. We got to keep going. Even as there's just these waves of incredibly disturbing violence every couple of weeks. Because the, this group of people does not believe that this fight concerns them. At all. You know, for them, their battle is literally putting food on the table. 
they know that the scaffolds bad, they understand. You know, they also understand that there is a way to get rid of him, a compromise of some sort to get them out of their lives and continue to actually put food on the table. So they're going to go with the person that actually could provide the food on the table because, you know, until you can get rid of him and actually, like, fend for yourself because the other option is versus... Uh, the revolutionaries have not presented people, you know, in a way that could offer serious solutions on how to lead the country or improve the problems, the, the issues that people care about. The goals of this revolution is a civilian end of corruption, more accountability, a civilian uh, government, uh, liberties. The goals of the people are to live in security and put food on the table. I mean, I don't think that the goals are incompatible it's not that or they're incompatible. that there's no overlap. It's not that they're not overlap, but you're talking to them about concepts. Concepts and, you know, theories and promises and stuff that he has heard for 30 years under Mubarak. That, you know, development is coming, we're really going to end corruption, stuff like that. They've reached a point in which they don't buy rhetoric. So if it's not going to be about rhetoric, uh, what can you do for me right now? You know, you can sure, and also, you know, how appealing is it? I mean, right now, what the what the protesters stand for is, you know, being willing to participate in these uh, incredibly dangerous, violent, destructive-looking, direct clashes with the army. How easily can you sell that to the general public as 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 something that they want to join in you are or clashing support with the army? This is the yeah. first time there was an actual clash with the army. The, the, the Maspiro was not a clash. Maspiro was a massacre. <laughs> Let's be honest. Maspiro, it's not exactly like the Christians were fighting against the army. The army just went in and beat the Christians and run over the Christians, and they were just simply resisting, but they're not really fighting. This is a fight. This is the first time this has happened. We should just recap, if we're, if we're going to talk about the events of the recent... Uh uh, recent few days. Uh, on Friday morning, a, uh, a young man by the name of Aboudi reportedly was uh, went to fetch a ball that had landed in the cabinet building, uh, was arrested by military police, and uh, uh, held for several hours, uh, beaten to, to an inch of his life, and then released, and this sparked off uh, a riot, basically, which d degenerated into uh, military police, and uh, protesters throwing stones against each other and, and then degenerated further over the course of the next few days. Uh, I, I went there on Friday and several days after, and it was uh, surreal to see just uh, uniformed army officers throwing stones from the top of buildings, uh, showing the finger to the uh, uh, protesters, basically acting as a, as a mirror image. Of, uh, 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 of their of, police counterparts. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, did did you did you go? Did you attend uh, uh, any of these uh, protests? I attended Mohammed Mahmoud. I have attended Maspiro. I did not attend the one at the cabinet. And I don't fully understand why it's happening because uh, for me it's not like they are fighting in order to occupy the cabinet, or they're fighting in order to occupy Mosquito. They're fighting because they were on the street and they got attacked and they're fighting over the street, which is the same way that has happened in Muhammad Mahmoud. You have actually maintained the street fight going for over five, forever, about like a week. And it was simple, it seemed very obvious. The police were basically responding. The police were actually doing a war of attrition. 
All right. We know that you're easy to entice and incite. I mean, we know that you will get into this fight and you will continue fighting it because you want to fight it. Because there is an anarchist nature in this revolution that is very much anti-authority. And those people are fighting for that. But at some point, you have to wonder if there is a goal. You know, for me, it was, okay, we have two, I have about 250,000 people here. Why are they not just moving towards the TV station and declaring a revolution the same way it should have been declared? Taking over state media instead of having it continue to label them as thugs or whatever. They're not doing this. No, they're fighting in Mahmoud. You put it very well, I think, uh, before you said people are fighting for territory and this is not a war for it's territory. Not, oh, it's a street. Tahrir is not a magical land where if you control the keys of the kingdom, you, know, you, get, you can bring down the evil tower of Mordor. You know what I'm saying? On which the scarf uh, live. You know, this is, it's a square. It's a piece of land. It's a symbol. And we are fighting and dying over the symbol, even though maintaining the symbol means nothing in terms of actually achieving what this revolution is all about, which is changing the institutions. You have to go and change institutions, but you're fighting to maintain the symbol. And they have managed to completely corrupt it for you. Well, thank you for joining us so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you soon. Yes. Indeed. Check out sendmonkey.org and uh, Mahmoud also tweets at ampersand uh, sendmonkey. We'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to that interview with uh, sendmonkey. And we're sorry about some of the different qualities of sound there. We had to delay this podcast to fix some of those problems. In any case, we'll be back probably early in 2012. So we want to wish listeners uh, happy holidays happy merry christmas uh, hanukkah happy new year all of that and uh, leave you with the sound and some thoughts about syria where uh things have in the past week uh taken a quite dramatic turn the steady rate of um, killings by the syrian regime has gone up uh, by three or four times there was of course the Damascus bombing I used to live in Syria in the mid 1990s and uh, one of the things I fondly remember about this time of the year in Syria is how much enthusiasm Syrians Christian or Muslim would put in to celebrating Christmas uh, so I'm gonna leave you with the medley of Syrian Christmas songs have a good break and see you next year